Welcome to week number three of our series, Sent, our study through the book of Acts. And we have been learning that God has given all of us a mission, and that mission requires that we go. Uh, Our mission, we see in the book of Acts, is less about coming to church and more about going out into the world. Uh, We are a sent people, every one of us. We are sent to our families. We are sent to our neighbors. uh, We are sent to our coworkers. We are sent to this world, just sent to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever God takes us. Now, in the second half of the first chapter of Acts, Jesus' followers have received that mission of being sent. They are ready to go, but Jesus has told them something that might seem surprising at first. He tells them to wait. Before they go, they have to wait. Before they go, they need to prepare. They they need to get ready. They have to wait before they're sent. And so that's what we're going to be thinking about today. We're going to see three things about how God wants us to wait sometimes in order for us to be sent. From the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. When they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Those present were Peter, John, James, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. They all joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in this ministry. With the reward he got for his wickedness, Judas bought a field. There he fell headlong, his body burst open, and all his intestines spilled out. Everyone in Jerusalem heard about this, so they called that field in their language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For, said Peter, it is written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, It is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. And this is the word of the Lord. Now I want to kick this off by asking a question, a question for all of you, and it it is simply this, who here enjoys waiting I mean, you just love to wait. Is there anybody here like you think maybe, I don't know, your spiritual gift is waiting? Anybody, anybody want to claim that one? Uh, very few of us are good at waiting, right? Uh, we just live in this culture where everything is so fast. It's a microwave, Google search, hey, Alexa, culture. You know, we, we ask for information and we expect instant answers. It's just the way we live. We want it and we want it now. 
We don't love to wait. We don't want to wait. I'm going to confess some of my sins right now, so uh, you may want to write some things down. Um, I don't like to wait. In fact, one of the things I hate uh, most is waiting in traffic. Anybody with me on that one? And in fact, uh, when I hit a traffic jam, my first thought is, is there an alternate route? Can I go another way? And I have been known, I have been known to go other ways that actually take longer uh, than the way that I'm already on, but I don't care because I'm moving, I'm moving. <laughs> is there anybody else here who also sometimes gets mad at their phone? Because, you know, you touch it and it doesn't do what you want it to do when you touch it, right? It's supposed to do it now. And if you touch it, and even though, you know, your phone gives you, you know, your phone just gives you the world. You have access to virtually everything just in your hand. If it doesn't answer you now, it's a stupid phone, not a smartphone. It's a stupid phone. We hate to wait. We hate to wait. And then there's like airplane delays. I had to fly down to Southern California this this week, and there was like a 20-minute delay, and I was getting a little annoyed at that. You know, we get all been out of shape, few minutes here, and instead of thinking, you know, it would be a good idea if they made sure the plane was safe. That's actually better than saving 20 minutes, but we just hate to wait. Uh, yesterday, uh, Dana and I were in the drive-thru getting some food at Panera, and there was a car in front of us, and this car was taking way too long. And I said, what is wrong with these people? I mean, how many bags of food are they getting up there? They need to move on. Come on. I got things to do. And so they finally drove on, and then we pulled up, and I had my credit card out. The girl reached out the window, handed us our food, and I tried to hand her my credit card, and she said, no, you're good. The car in front of you paid for your food. and the car behind us, so that's why it was taking so long. And uh, we just don't like to wait. Don't judge me. Because I know you're just as bad or worse, some of you. Well, we don't like to wait for anything, right? But it, it can be especially hard when we're waiting on God. And you've all been in that place. We've all been there. Maybe God has spoken to you about something. He's given you a direction. You've taken that direction. You've obeyed what he's told you to do, what you understood he was saying, and yet things haven't worked out, and you're wondering, why hasn't God come through? It's like you're stuck there, and it could be a number of things. You may be single, and you're waiting to get married. You may be married, and you're waiting to have a child. You may be sick, and you're waiting for a healing. Whatever your waiting is, it is hard, hard to trust. It's hard to be faithful. A lot of times when we're waiting, we, we respond in two negative ways. Sometimes some of us, are tend to, we tend to take matters into our own hands. We just plow ahead on our own. It's like, just do anything. It doesn't matter what it is. Just do anything. And we don't stop to think that sometimes just doing anything, even if it's the wrong thing, is not very wise counsel, right? And sometimes we make matters worse by taking our action and not by waiting. Some of us tend to the other direction when God hasn't come through. Some of us just give up. And we gotta get sidetracked. We start wasting our lives. The Bible talks a lot about waiting, but you need to know the kind of waiting that the Bible commands for us, the kind of waiting that Jesus 
commanded for his first followers is not like either of those. It wasn't passive, waiting around, just doing nothing, just hoping things will turn out. It wasn't striking out on our own. And waiting for God, if I could define it, means active obedience. Active obedience that that trusts God to work in his way and, and in his time. Now, here's what we have in Acts chapter 1. Jesus has appeared to his disciples. They have witnessed his resurrection. He's given them, Luke says, many convincing proofs. They've received his commission to them in verse 8 to be his witnesses, to take his message out to the world. And they have witnessed his ascension, his return to the Father. And you would think, having read what has happened in the first 11 verses, that it would be go time now, that it's, you know, we need to get out there, spread the gospel, get busy doing the work of God's kingdom. But Jesus has given them a command to wait back in verse 4. He says, go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit to come. And what we see in this text that we've just read, verses 12 to 26, is, is really a great picture of what it looks like for us to wait on God, for us to wait on God's promises. So how do we wait faithfully? How do we wait in order to be sent? I want to show you three things that we see in this text. Number one, uh, we gather together. The very first thing that they did in their waiting is they gathered together. And and we learn a lot about these people, who they are in verses 12 and following. Verse 12 says, then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day's walk from the city. And this is about two thirds of a mile away, not a really long walk. They returned to Jerusalem. And again, we, we pointed this out last week. They were obeying Jesus. He had told them to do this. Verse 13, when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. Now, this upper room may be the place where Jesus ate the last supper with his disciples before the cross. It, it could also be the, the upper room where he appeared to his disciples after he was resurrected when they were behind the locked doors. Remember, he just passed through the wall. There he was all of a sudden. We don't know for sure. But what we are told in verse 15 is that about 120 gathered here. And 120 was not a random number. It has significance. In Jewish law of that day, 120 people was minimum to establish a community with its own council. And this tells us that the disciples are forming a new community, forming the body of Christ. This is right here, the first gathering of the church. And so we need to see that before they are sent out on their mission, the very first thing, the very first Christ followers do as they gather together. Gathering together is essential for us as well. See, before we embark on our mission, we must continually, every week, gather together to spur other, each other on toward the mission that God has given us. Hebrews 10.25 says, let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. See, what we do here is not a mere formality. It's not some religious act that we're supposed to engage in to earn some points with God somehow. The author of Hebrews is telling us, reminding us, we have this promise that Christ is returning. That promise was inherent in the ascension that we looked at last week. Christ is returning one day. He will take his people home, and he is coming to judge the living and the dead. And so we meet together continually to remind each other 
what our mission is, what God has called us to do in this world, to tell other people about Jesus, to let them know that he will forgive them and let them know he's coming again one day. This is why we gather on Sundays. This is why we gather during the week in our small groups. And I simply want to point this out. If you are not in community with other believers, you may have some excuses for the Spirit, have some reasons for that, but the Bible is very, very plain. You are not walking in step with what the Spirit has for you. God commands us to be in relationship with other people, and that is more than just sitting in a room in rows with a bunch of other people one time on Sunday. God wants us to be, get to know people, to live with them, to experience life with them, to, to minister and serve with them, all the things that the New Testament talks about. Now, who is gathered here? Uh, Luke lists, first of all, he says the apostles. And it's the same list that he gives in Luke chapter six, minus Judas Iscariot. You might notice from this point on, we're going to hear about Peter and James and John, but not much more about the other apostles. Luke also says the women were there. This probably refers to Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Susanna and Mary, uh, the mother of James. These are the women Luke mentions in several places in his gospel in chapter 8, chapter 23, chapter 24. These are the women who traveled with the disciples from Galilee down to Jerusalem. These are the women who went to the tomb, who, who saw the empty tomb, who saw the risen Lord. And one of the things that's significant here is this shows us that in the early church, uh, we have both men and women together meeting to worship God. And it reminds us that from the beginning, one of the marks of God's people was the dignity given to women. This was not true in the culture of that day. And it still is not true in most of the other religions of the world. And unfortunately, sometimes it isn't true in the church of Jesus. But the New Testament teaches us that women are equal in value to men. God sets out different roles in the church and in the family, but men and women are equal in value and worth in God's sight. Luke also tells us specifically that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was there. And again, this is significant. Mary is there now transformed from the last time we've seen her, the distraught mother grieving her son's murder at the cross to now a devoted follower along with the, the 120. And Mary is worshiping her son. Just, just think about that. I mean, imagine this. The mother of Jesus, she gave him birth in her new role now, not just the earthly mom of Jesus, but also now his followers. This is so awesome to see that. Now, Luke lists the brothers of Jesus. This is also incredibly significant. In John chapter 7, verse 5, uh, we are told that Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. They, they thought he was crazy. And I just want to tell you, you should not judge those brothers, okay? You think about it. If your brother told you that he was a God, <laughs> what would you think? And yet here they are. James... Joseph, Jude, Simon. The names aren't listed here. We, we find the names in Mark chapter 6. 
We know from 1 Corinthians 15, 7, that the resurrected Christ appeared to James, his brother. Luke is just quietly reminding us through all the mention of these names of how lives are changed, transformed when they encounter the resurrected Christ. The early church gathered together. We need to gather together. Now, what did they gather to do? Well, Luke also tells us in his gospel Uh, some of what they did before the Spirit came. And I've been reminding you the last chapter of Luke's gospel and the first chapter of the book of Acts, they kind of interplay. It's good to read them side by side. And Luke 24, 50 to 53 says, when he had led them out to the vicinity of Bethany, he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he left them and was taken up into heaven. Then they worshiped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they stayed continually at the temple praising God. And so what were they doing during this time of waiting? They were continually blessing God with joy in the temple, worshiping him for what he had done through his son, Jesus. But then verse 14 tells us they were also praying. John Stott in his commentary says, this is a healthy combination, continuous praise in the temple, continuous prayer at home. And it leads us to the second thing, that we see them doing as they wait. A second thing that's essential for us as well, we need to pray together. We pray together. Uh, Verse 14, as I mentioned, tells us they all join together constantly in prayer. Now, we need to be honest. As Americans, this is a very countercultural thing. We are people of action, people of doing things. We we think, I have a mission. I got to get going. I don't have time to pray. And as your pastor... I want to say to you, pray, pray. We got to pray just to make it today. Sorry. I apologize. That's horrible. I know. I can't believe I said that. But some of you are going, what are you talking about? You, you forgot about the baggy pants prophet from the 90s, right? Uh, Tracy's most famous resident, maybe. I don't know. Uh, pray was actually, you know, Hammer's biggest song. So just... Don't lose me on hammer, all right, okay? Um, But not only did they remember what Jesus commanded them to do in verse four, which was pray and wait, they probably remembered Jesus himself as he prepared for the mission of the cross. What did Jesus do? In the garden, he prepared himself for his crucifixion by praying. He asked his disciples to join him, to watch and pray. And so now they're getting ready to go out, to be sent out on their mission. And the first thing they do is they gather and they pray. And this is, a, this is something that actually really rebukes us, our churches today. It's an area where we as churches in the West, especially in our culture, are ex- extremely negligent. We are often so prayerless. Just think about this. As a church, we are called to be witnesses and we are called to make disciples. You might put it this way. Some people have said the mission of the church is to know Christ and to make him known. And Jesus makes it so clear in the Gospels that we cannot do any of those things, either of those things, by ourselves. You cannot pursue Christ-likeness in your own strength. You cannot make disciples apart from him. Now listen to John 15, 5. Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, You can do certain things. Is that what it says? No, apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. 
See, we will never know Christ. We will never pursue Christ truly in our own strength. We, we need his power in us to be witnesses. And again, we saw this last week. Verse eight says, we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on us, and then we will be witnesses. We, we cannot fulfill the mission God has given us to proclaim the gospel in our own strength. And this starts with what we do here on Sundays. It continues with what we do in our lives and in our community all, all through the week. I can't preach in my own strength and have it make any impact on you. You can't be part of a small group community in your own strength and have it make any life change in, in your life. The, the disciples, they understood this. I, I think they were feeling this so acutely in these moments because they didn't have Jesus with them and he had been with them every day for three years, but now he's gone. He's not there. They don't have his physical presence, but they had prayer. It was how they connected to Christ. And so before they began their mission, before they were sent, they prayed, they prepared with prayer. Before they acted, they prayed. It's kind of an interesting thing to consider in this book that is called the Acts of the Apostles. And the very first act of their mission was prayer. See, prayer isn't, somebody said, just preparing for mission. Prayer is the first act of mission. Listen to Isaiah 30, verse 1. It says, Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, or without consulting me. In verse 18, it says, Yet the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He rises to show you compassion, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all who wait for him. You know, a few minutes ago, I, I told you that when the Bible talks about waiting, it's not a passive waiting. It's an active waiting. It, it's a waiting that involves obedience to what we know God is our, a very good place to do. And I was thinking there's a really good picture of this. You might be surprised to consider it. A, a very good picture of this kind of waiting is a waiter or a waitress. Think about it. A, a waiter or waitress is someone who is waiting on a table. What does that mean? Well, that waiter or waitress is attentive to the table's needs. They are watching and they are listening and they are responding. The waiter or waitress acts on what they're told as they wait. Waiting on God is something like that. And so in prayer, prayer is part of this. In prayer, I'm actively waiting. I'm watching and I'm listening and I'm responding to God and my actions and my obedience flows from that waiting they gathered, they prayed. How did they pray? What marked their prayer? Three things I want to point out that we see. We're, we're, we're told their praying was unified. It says they prayed together. Some translations say they prayed in one accord. And the word here is used uh, later in Acts chapter 4 to talk about united prayer again. It is used later in Acts chapter 15 to talk about united decision and resolve that they made together. It, it literally means that they prayed with one heart, one mind, one purpose. They understood that their mission wasn't about them. And so in humility, they united together. Don't miss that they're called brothers in verse 15. In verse 14, uh, we're told about Jesus' physical, earthly brothers. But in verse 15, the whole group, they're all called brothers. Why? Because we now enter into a family through faith. 
we are united in God's, uh, as God's people in the body of Christ through faith, brothers and sisters in the family of God. We are called in that family to live for his glory, to be witnesses for him. This is so important. Why are we united? Jesus said this in John 17, 21, when he was praying for his disciples. He prayed that they would be one. He said, I'm praying, Father, they would be one just as you and I are one. Why? He goes on to say, so that the world will know that you sent me. See, when the world looks and sees God's people united, not divided, united on mission, they see Jesus. Not only do we need to be united in prayer, but think about this. I believe that praying together is what unites us. Praying together gives birth to unity. You say, why? Well, think about it. As we pray together, we we take our eyes off ourselves and our own wants, and we put our eyes on Christ And this is such an important thing because so many of us are are really confused about what church is about. Uh, So many of us think that we come to church to fix our lives, to solve our problems. And yes, you can bring your problems to, to God's place, God's people gathered together. This is a place where we find God's solution to problems. And, and I know you have problems. I mean, I just look at you and I can see there's lots of problems out here, but that's not why we come. We come primarily for God, to worship him. And it is in the worship of God and in the love of God that flows through us out to the people of our worlds. It's actually in that that we find amazingly so many times our problems find resolution. Have you ever noticed that? And and praying is just an action that reminds us of that it points us in that direction. See, as we remember the gospel in prayer, we we think about why we're here, that the world is lost without Christ. That takes our eyes off of our needs and off of our problems, and it helps to put our our eyes on the needs of people around us, people who have the greatest need of all, the gospel, and the greatest problem of all, that they're lost and they're doomed to an eternity apart from Christ. We see that more when we pray together. See, as we pray, we, we take our eyes off of this world's pursuits, and we focus more on what Christ has for us to pursue his mission. Prayer is so important. It's it's why Paul is going to write a few years after this uh, to consider others more significant than yourselves and put their interests before your own. He says, have this mind in you. He points them to Jesus, Jesus who emptied himself and died for us. When we pray together, We take our eyes off ourselves. We put our eyes on Jesus. Prayer causes unity to be born in us. It applies to so many things. You know, if you're here and your marriage is suffering, one of the most important things I could tell you to do is to pray together. You might say, I don't even want to be in the same room with that person. You need to pray together even more. You want to be united and you find your marriage is dividing, you, you start praying together, God begins to work. Maybe your family is suffering and falling apart. Husbands, fathers, you need to take the lead and begin praying with your family and just watch what God does. Th- this could apply to so many different things in our lives. As we pray, God begins to work. And then we also see their praying was persistent. In verse 14 
It says joined, they joined together in the NIV. More literally, it says they were devoting themselves to prayer. They were just constantly praying together. They understood something we need to be reminded of, I think, that God often doesn't answer prayer right away. Doesn't that annoy you sometimes? Prayer is rarely a quick fix. Sometimes God answers right away. Praise God when he does, but often he doesn't do that. Often God doesn't answer prayers right away. And have you noticed that God usually, usually doesn't seem to answer prayers when and how you think he will? Why? I think a lot of the times God delays his answer because he wants, he wants to see our persistence in prayer God is training us. God leaves room for us to wait because waiting, think about this, waiting is really how we demonstrate our faith in God and his promises. And in this matter of prayer, let me just put it this way. If you pray for something once or twice and then give up, here's what that indicates to you. Here's what that tells you. That tells you that you're likely not looking for God to provide. You give him a shot, maybe two shots, and then you're gonna take care of it yourself. You're really trusting in yourself. And God wants us to keep trusting in him. And so he tells us to keep praying because persistent prayer trains us, putting our trust on God. The third thing we see is their praying was based on God's promises. Now, specifically, the promise that God had given them that they would be his witnesses, that the Holy Spirit, they would receive the Holy Spirit and his power for witness. Sometimes people see the promises of God and attempt to think, you know, well, if God has promised something, why should I pray for it? It's interesting. No one in the Bible ever thinks like that. No one in the Bible ever talks like that. See, in the Bible, it is understood that the promises of God don't make prayer unnecessary. The promises of God undergird our praying. The promises of God give us confidence that God will hear our prayers and he will answer our prayers. And it's not that God needs us to pray. God invites us to pray in order that we can be a part of his plan. Isn't that awesome? That we get to join in the activity of God. He allows us through prayer to become part of what he is doing. And the promises of God encourage us and motivate us to pray because we know we're praying for the things that God wants to do in this world. So prayer is so vital, especially when we're waiting. We, we need to gather together when we're waiting. We need to pray together. And then third, uh, we need to act together. Now, how did they act? And what did they act on? As we look at this text, for these particular believers in this particular situation to keep in step with the Spirit, there was a task that needed to happen. And it was the replacement of Judas. If you look at verses 16 through 20, we'll see his story is given succinctly there. And, and some of us, as we read how Judas' life ended, we, we might be kind of troubled to think of a follower of Christ ending this way. But I want you to know this. Read the New Testament, all of its, its testimony to Judas, all it says about him. And you will see Judas was not someone who truly believed, and then he fell away. Then he lost his salvation. Judas was a betrayer from the beginning. Judas was among the 12 but he was not with them in truth. We're told that he was in charge of the money and he often stole that money from Christ. In the Gospel of John, he, John tells us that Jesus knew from the beginning that Jesus, Judas would betray him. John 6, verse 70 says, Then Jesus replied, 
have I not chosen you, the 12? Yet one of you is a devil. And then we're told later that when Judas dipped the bread and then he went to betray Jesus, in the Greek text, it literally says he welcomed Satan into his heart. Now, this is an important thing to contemplate. Here is a man who walked closely with Jesus and with Jesus' closest disciples for three years, and yet it didn't change him. He, He wasn't a true follower. I mean, if Judas could walk for three years with Jesus and he didn't truly believe, it should lead us to live with humility and humbly examine our own hearts. Do we really know and follow Christ? Or are we just doing the church thing because, I don't know, that's what our family did? Do we truly know and follow Christ or are we just you know, participating in the life of the church because that's what our spouse believes and it keeps it more peaceful at home? Do we really truly know, follow Christ or do we like coming to church because you know, it makes us feel better, sing some songs, listen to that guy talk up there on the stage. He talks way too long sometimes, but you know, I, I kind of feel better sometimes. Do you know him? Don't take it for granted. There's a question that's here. Matthew tells us that Judas had a horrible ending. Matthew 27, verse 5, we're told he hung himself. Now, Luke tells us here that he fell headlong and his body burst open and his guts spilled out. Some people say, well, that's a contradiction. I don't really think so. I think it's just two sides of the same event. You could put these together and and understand that he hung himself. And as he hung on a tree, his body decomposing at some point, the rope broke and he fell and his guts busted out. I don't know what you're having for lunch, but um, (laughs) that's just a horrible ending. Now, we'll come back to his ending in a minute, but the point here is that he needs to be replaced. And Jesus had communicated this, in essence, to them. In Luke 22, 28 to 30, Jesus had said to his disciples, you are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. As we read the Bible, we know that God's Old Testament people, Israel, had 12 tribes. And so God's people in the new covenant, 12 apostles, For the New Testament people of God to be a fulfillment of Old Testament Israel, to be in continuity, there needed to be 12 apostles. Now, by the way, you're going to read farther on in the book of Acts that James is is going to die, and they won't replace him. And the reason was he didn't defect. But here they need to act. How do they act? It's very important to watch them. These disciples are, again, are men who'd walked with Jesus for three years. For the last three years, they've just been living with Jesus. And Jesus would say, let's go this way or let's go that way. Jesus would say, we're going to do this today or we're, we're going to do that today. That's what's their life. Jesus told them what to do and they, they follow. But now they don't have Jesus physically present. I mean, how do they know what to do? How do they know what God's will is? And so... This text actually is a great case study for us in how we can make decisions, especially how we in a waiting period of our lives can walk by faith and not by sight when we don't have the presence of Jesus physically with us. I mean, how do we know God's will? How do we do God's will? Peter steps up in verse 15. We're told he rises, he addresses the 120 
Remember, Peter is the one who denied Jesus three times, but Jesus has restored him. That's so amazing. He's, he, he has failed Jesus so miserably, but now through grace, God is using him again. And what does Peter do? Well, here's the first thing. Write this down. Peter starts with God's word. You want to know what decision you need to make? You've got to start with scripture. In verse 16, Peter says, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through the mouth of David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. This is a remarkable text. And in in verse 20, uh, Peter quotes Psalm 69 and, and Psalm 109. And Psalm 69 was known as a messianic prophecy, and it, it, it had prophesied that there would be one who would betray Messiah. Jesus himself had said in John 17, 12, that he lost none of his uh, apostles except for the one who was the son of destruction, the one who was doomed to fall away to fulfill scripture. Even Jesus saw Judas' betrayal as a fulfillment of scripture. And then Psalm 109 talks about one taking the place of the one who fell away. Now, we may read these texts and we may go back to the Psalms and we're not quite sure how we see the connection. The first thing I want you to understand is this. We've already been told as we read Luke's account that when Jesus was resurrected and he came to his disciples, the first thing he did is he opened their minds to the scriptures. He showed them that all the scriptures pointed to him pointed to his life, pointed to his work. And so now here's Peter, and and Peter's been taught by Jesus, and Peter now understands that all the Old Testament points to Jesus. And so under God's guidance, Peter interprets and applies these texts. Now, if you want to get technical, uh, what he does is he uses the, the Jewish hermeneutical principles of corporate solidarity and analogous subjects. So I hope that clears it up for you. I'm not going to go into that, but these were principles, maybe unfamiliar to us, but it was common then was how they would read texts like this. But here's what I do want you to see. These early followers of Christ saw all of their lives, every part of their lives as under the authority of the word of God. They understood the scriptures to be God's word. It says the Holy Spirit spoke through David. That's, That's what Peter says. Whatever they did, they were looking to the word of God for guidance. See, do you do that? Do you start with God's word as you make life's decisions? Is your understanding of the world and the way that life should be lived, is it formed by God's word or is it in truth really formed more by our culture, more by our own personal philosophies of life? If we all have questions about discerning God's will, a lot of times they're about specific things like who do I marry, what job should I take, things like that. And we know, of course, that God doesn't give us specific answers to questions like these in the Bible. But as we read, as we study the Bible, as we put ourselves under the Bible's authority, we learn the biblical principles that guide us in the specific situations. And so before we act, we should always put ourselves under the authority of God's word. The second thing we see Peter and the apostles doing is this, uh, use wisdom. Sometimes people say wisdom is common sense. I think a better definition is sanctified common sense. Look, Look what we're seeing here. Verses 21 and 22 says, therefore it is necessary to choose one of the men who have been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us 
beginning from John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So there's 120 people there. We gotta replace Judas. Scripture tells us that. So who do we pick? Well, they use wisdom. They say someone who was with them when Jesus was there. It's kind of common sense, right? If you're replacing an apostle, you need to replace some, an apostle with someone who has apostolic qualifications. What are those? Well, Peter says an apostle is one who was chosen by Jesus to walk with him, one who was with him in his earthly ministry, one who was a witness to his resurrection. And by the way, sometimes in the 21st century, we might run into people and they'll tell us they're an apostle. I don't know if you've ever met someone who said they were an apostle. If you ever do meet someone who says they're an apostle, I want you to look at them really, really carefully because that person is very, very old. <laughs> I mean, they're really old. You see, see what it's saying? I, I disagree with that use of the term. I, I think the Bible's definition of apostleship is, is stated right here. It is, it is an office that was given to the church at the very beginning of the life of the church. These were men who were chosen to be witnesses to the resurrection. They had seen Jesus resurrected. That's what we see the apostles doing constantly throughout the book of Acts, pointing to the resurrection. In Acts 4.33, Luke tells us with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. See, it just, this is just wisdom, common sense that they're, they're utilizing here. It's not setting aside God's word. Again, they're going to the word, submitting to its authority. They're, they're spending time in prayer, but then you use wisdom. And they just kept praying. In verses 23 and 24, it says, So they proposed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice, and Matthias. And then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry. So here's how they think. Jesus chose the original 12. Jesus will choose Judas' replacement. Jesus will show them the one he has already chosen. And this is so awesome. Do you know what they call Jesus? They call Jesus cardiognostes. Jesus, the heart knower. The heart knower. They're, they're just praying, Jesus, you're the heart knower. Show us which man you have chosen. And in praying this, they're admitting, we, we can't see inside someone. We can't see a heart. Only God can do this. That's why we need to pray. God, we need you to guide us. Now, final step. You need to stay with me on this one, okay? Don't get sidetracked. They cast lots. In verse 26, it says, then they cast lots and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the 11 apostles. Now, what in the world does that mean? You know, this is, is this like Las Vegas or Reno or something? Well, in those days, the Jewish custom was to cast lots for decisions. But here's how they understood that. We like to talk sometimes about random things happening. In a biblical mindset, nothing is random. Nothing's random. Now, Proverbs 16.33 says, The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. That's how they looked at the world. God's in control. And so something that seems random, like casting lots, it's not. Now, what this really means in terms of a principle is this, just trust God. 
they, they put it in God's hands. Now, I want you to notice two things about this. First of all, it is not just something haphazard. As I've already said, they've been studying God's word. They've been praying, and they're persisting in their prayer. But then the second thing we need to notice about this is we live in a different place in time. Today, we have the Holy Spirit. See, they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. The Holy Spirit comes next week, so you need to come back. <laughs> but they didn't have the Holy Spirit yet. And, and as we read through the New Testament, after the Holy Spirit comes, we see no more mention of anyone casting lots because now the Holy Spirit has come. He lives inside us. He guides us. He, 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 he leads us. So if you have a decision to make, what do you do? Well, you go to God's word. You put yourself under the authority of God's word. You pray and you keep praying. You, you let God's word, as you read it and as you pray, you let that word shape your worldview, not our culture. You let that, that word of God shape your morality, shape your ethics, shape your desires. And there are some things you're going to encounter that may not be explicitly commanded or dealt with in the Bible. Then you use wisdom. And sometimes you just trust God that his Holy Spirit is going to guide you. In Acts 30, verse, excuse me, Isaiah 30, verse 21, it says, whether you turn to the right or to the left, your ears will hear a voice behind you saying, this is the way, walk in it. God has a mission, is a mission for you, and we should all be busy at carrying out the mission because we are sent. But in the midst of that, sometimes we find ourselves in a, a waiting room, a place of waiting. And if you are waiting, let me just ask you, are you gathering together with God's people? Or are you trying to do this all by yourself? Are you praying are you praying persistently, praying again with God's people? Be reminded, sometimes God wants us to show our trust in him in our waiting as we persist in prayer. And then when you make a decision, is it a decision that is being made out of a heart and a mind that has been shaped by the word of God, submitted to the word of God? Are you using the wisdom of God? Are you trusting in the Holy Spirit of God to guide you? Psalm 37, four says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Proverbs three, five and six says, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. I wanna conclude with the gospel because we, we really do see the gospel right here in this text. We see the gospel in the person of Judas and the person of Peter. Think about it. Both men walked with Jesus. Both men were disciples of Jesus. Both men failed Jesus. Judas betrayed Jesus for 30 pieces of silver because he loved money more than he loved Jesus. Peter denied Jesus. He did it three times. What's the difference between them? Well, the gospel tells us that we're all like both Judas and Peter, because every one of us has turned aside to our own way. Every one of us has rejected and betrayed God. Just as it says about Judas, he turned aside to go to his own place. So have we. The Bible tells us that. We, we've all said, God, I don't need you. We, we've turned aside. The difference, the difference between Judas and Peter is that Peter repented. Peter was broken over his sin. 
And when Jesus came to him after the resurrection, Peter said, Jesus, you know I love you. You know my heart. And and out of his repentance, God restored him. And now Peter's the one who stands up and God's using him to lead this community. But Judas, Judas remained obstinate in his rebellion all the way to his suicide. Judas died separated from God. He died alone. He died in a field of blood. His habitation was desolate. I'm just saying to all of us, we're all in this place on our own because we've all rejected God. If you've never given your heart, your life to God, how will you respond? See, this passage is reminding us that God has sent his son Jesus, because God is rich in mercy, because God is so full of love for this world that he created. He sent his son, Jesus, and Jesus has come into this world, and Jesus has lived a perfect life, and Jesus has died on the cross to pay for our sins, and he now offers to all a free gift, salvation. It's a gift that comes with, through grace. You don't have to earn anything, do anything to get it. You just receive it. Have you responded to the gospel? You simply confess. You simply repent. You simply place your trust in Jesus Christ. The Bible says when we do that, when we do that, we will be saved. Saved by the grace of our God. Are you waiting today? Trust in God. God will work if we follow his word. I encourage you to bow your heads now. We're going to pray. Father, we, we pray uh, that today that you would open hearts to your love and your grace, that you would open hearts to the gospel, the good news of forgiveness. Lord, we, we ask that you would just even now grant repentance and faith that that men and women, even boys and girls, would come to know you today, Lord, here and, and, and even now. And Lord, we also pray that you would teach us how we are to wait. You've given us a mission that uh, we need to be obedient to, but where we find ourselves waiting sometimes, Lord, maybe in a holding pattern, not knowing what's next, help us to trust you and help us to wait under the authority of your word. Help us to see your wisdom and, and Lord, give us the courage to act in the right time, in the right way. Lord, we ask these things, asking and praying that in everything your name would be lifted high. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, our Savior, and all God's people together said,